It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, my family had a great time camping last weekend, and uh, I, I did, in the process, though, miss being here with you guys, so I'm glad to be back uh, with you and, and sharing again. Uh, we're continuing this series, like Jeremy said, on the life of David, some of the highlights of David's life, his story, um, and uh, we're calling it After God's Heart, and we're looking at these highlights, um, and rather than saying, like, hey, here's what David did, that's what we should do, Right? Rather than saying that, we're saying that, well, David was a man that was fashioned. God, God said, this is a man after my heart. God said that. And so if David was a man that was fashioned after God's heart, clearly, even though he still had some flaws, he was still working with some, some uh, humanity there. Um, we can look at David's life then and say, all right, well, there's some points. There's some things in David's life that we can look at and we can say, okay, well, that's the character of God. Um, if David is fashioned after God's heart, well, we can see God's heart there in a couple of different places in, in David's life. So we're going to look at these Old Covenant, Old Testament stories, um, and we're going to look at them as New Covenant believers, and we can say, what do we learn about God's character through this scenario right here? Um, and uh, clearly, David was a man after God's heart. Clearly, he is also a symbol, uh, a, a type of the Messiah, the coming Christ, Jesus. So, um, so today I want to look at a story from 1 Samuel chapter 24. Um, and Jeremy talked about, he touched on this a little bit last week, some of the things that we're going to get into. Um, but what has happened is David, uh, has, he, he comes off this, this high of killing Goliath. That's kind of uh, his introduction there um, to, to the, the royal family, I think. And, uh, and after that, Jeremy talked about last week, he got really close with, with Saul's son, uh, Jonathan. It says that they were knit together. Their spirits were knit together. Um, and then David actually goes on and he lives in the king's house. And so he's brought into the, the palace or the, the king's house, wherever you want to call it. And uh, he starts living there with his family. And what starts to happen is people start to see David in a little bit of a different light. They start to, David's popularity starts to increase and people start saying things like, here comes Saul, he, he's killed with his thousands that he's killed and David with his 10,000s, right? So it's like, uh, uh-oh, all of a sudden, David starts showing up, not intentionally, but the people start seeing David as like this incredible warrior who has done these great things. Um, and uh, Saul didn't like it. He starts to get jealous. He's like, uh, we can't be having that. I'm the king, right? Um, and so Saul decides, well, I got to get rid of David. And at first, what he does, now this sounds a little familiar, pay attention. He says, you know what? I'm going to get rid of David. So to get rid of him, I'm going to send him into battle in impossible circumstances. And uh, hopefully the Philistines will take care of David for me. That sound familiar? Sounds like what David did to Uriah. Remember, he, David sent Uriah into battle and said, when, when, you, when I'm gonna send you in there and then all, everybody's gonna pull back and Uriah will be taken care of and then my sin with Bathsheba will be covered up and we don't have to worry about that thing, right? Um, so it sounds pretty familiar. But so Saul tries that first and it doesn't work. David is actually successful. It probably increases his popularity. Um, but then it escalates from there and Saul begins to actively try to kill David. Like, he throws a spear at him in, in his hat when he's in the house sometime um, and, and, and all kinds of stuff. It just like, it starts to escalate to the point where David says, all right, I gotta get out of here. So David runs and then Saul begins these, this series of episodes where he's like chasing David. He's after David. Um, and uh, 
So we're going to read in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, we're going to read one of those times when Saul has pursued David. Um, And we're going to read this again. I'm reading out of the NASB. Just a side note, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But the New American Standard Bible, the reason I read out of that, just so you know, is because it is the most literal translation that we have, okay? New American Standard is the most literal translation. There's a difference between translation and interpretation, Translation means I take this word and we put this word, this is what the English translation of that. Interpretation is I take that word, here's what the meaning of it is, and here's how people are going to understand it today. And the trouble you get with interpretation is now I've got somebody else's interpretation that I'm reading that's not the original word that was there. It doesn't mean it's not valuable. Things like the message, uh, that's valuable, right? But it's a paraphrase. You can't understand it as a translation. Um, it, you don't get the words there. It can have some meaning, but it also gets Eugene Peterson's meaning in there and what he understands it to mean, okay? Um, and, and some other versions do that. The NIV is actually has some interpretation there. They take the word and then they interpret it to, for meaning. So that's why I don't use the NIV anymore, actually. The NASB is a translation. It's the closest we have to a literal translation. So that's why we read that there. Um, it doesn't always read the smoothest, though, right? It's a, it can be a little bit clunky, uh, more clunky than other, trans, or other or the versions, but that's why I go back to 1 Samuel, or excuse me, that's why I go back to the New American Standard Bible, and that's why we're going to go to 1 Samuel in the New American Standard. And starting in, ver, in chapter 24, verse 1, we're going to read some, and then we're going to talk about it, all right? Kind of an interlinear thing. Verse one, it says, now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3000 chosen men from all Israel and he went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. All right, pause. En Gedi, the wilderness of En Gedi, it's a specific place, right? It's kind of like, it's a big area. So David Saul gets word that David is hiding out. He and his men are hiding out in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul's going to go there and he's going to seek out David. The wilderness of En Gedi is like an oasis. Think of it, it's, it's called a wilderness, but it's like it's an oasis, like in a desert, in a harsh environment, kind of on the edge of the Dead Sea. So David and his men are in that area. And when it says the rocks of the wild goats, that's like, that's capitalized, the rocks of the wild goats. That's a specific place. It's not just like, hey, we saw some goats there one time and they were in front of rocks and, and so we found it, right? And that's, it's a name. It's a specific place. It'd be like saying the Capitol building is in Frankfort, Kentucky, okay? But specifically, it's on Capitol Avenue, right? It gives you a more specific location. So actually, we know where this took place or the general area. We know the area that is called the rocks of the wild goats. So that's kind of fun, right? So it's a specific place. So Saul, uh, in verse three, then it says, Saul came, he came to the sheepfolds on the way. That just means sheep pens, a place where they kept sheep. And a lot of time it was in front of a cave. And look here, he came to sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, this is the fun part of the story, especially if you are an eight-year-old boy uh, and you like bathroom humor, or as I was informed this morning, a 48-year-old man in Capitol Vineyard Community Church. You like bathroom humor, right? 46, 46, 46 sorry, 46, right? Um, but it says that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. Now, that word relieve, it's actually, it's a euphemism. The word uh, uh, re- that is actually there is most literally translated, he went in to cover his feet. 
What does that mean? I don't know. Right? What, he, he had bad aim. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> and had to cover it. He's older than me. So, yeah, like, it's a euphemism, right? We don't really know what that means, but the people of the day knew what that meant. It'd be like, it's, we have kind of all kinds of euphemisms for going to the bathroom. I got to go number one. What does that mean? That doesn't really mean anything if you take the little number one. I got to go number one, or I got to go number two, right? Uh, what's the meaning there? It's a euphemism. We know what it means. Almost every single Sunday, almost every single Sunday, I hear from the worship team, from somebody, I got to go talk to a man about a horse. That's a euphemism for don't follow me into the bathroom, all right? Because that's what's going to happen, and you want to wait some time before you get into the bathroom. It's, it's a euphemism. So he went to cover his feet. Now, there is some other places in Scripture, or excuse me, one other place in Scripture that that term is used. We don't need to get into all the details, but what it amounts to is you could interpret that like he went to rest, he went to a cave to get some rest. Um, the other place in Scripture is used, it's talking about a, a king, the king of Moab, and some servants are waiting for him to come out, and they think, oh, he must have gone to cover his feet, and you could interpret that as resting, except that it says that the servants, after a long time, got embarrassed. They got ashamed for their king, thinking, man, he's taking a long time in the bathroom. Are you going to yell like, hey, did you fall in in there? Like, that's what my mom used to yell when I take a long time. She's like, did you fall in? Right? So all that to say, I think Saul, it was a long journey for Saul to go to the wilderness of Engedi. He probably stopped and got some gas station sushi along the way somewhere. And he had to go into the cave and talk to a man about a horse. All right? That's what we're talking about. That's exactly what we're talking about. All right? Unfortunately... Unfortunately, the cave that Saul chose to go into is also occupied, unbeknownst to him, by David and his men. That's an awkward situation. Um, But they were trying to hide from Saul. So we're going to pick up in verse 3 again. When he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So back in the back where it's dark, Saul can't see him. They're hidden. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I am going to give your enemy into your hands and you shall do to him as seems good to you. So David's men say, listen, doesn't get much more vulnerable than that, right? This is the time. Take him out. Take him out. Get rid of him. Your troubles will be over. God put him into your hands. He's going to make you king. This is it. Continuing on in verse four. And then David arose... And he cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, he left the cave and he went on his way. So David makes the choice to allow Saul to live, right? Even though he had him, he had him. Like this, this could have been it. This could be the end of his troubles and he didn't. Like our normal, logical, like human conventional thought would suggest, David, take him out, man. 
Like, get rid of him. He's trying to kill you. I mean, it's kind of fair, an eye for an eye. Like, he, he just happened to be in this unfortunate position. God has given your enemy into your hands. Take him out. That's what conventional wisdom says. But David, instead, he gets up, and I see him, like, I mean, you can imagine however much of this story you want to imagine, but I imagine David walking up, crawling up in the dark, getting the robe that Saul has thrown off to the side because he's got to cover his feet. And David cuts a little piece from that and he goes back to the back of the cave, right? And that's like David, later on we find out that as Saul, after Saul exits the cave, David calls out to him and says, basically, look, this is how close I was to you and I didn't touch you. Like I could have, I had, it was completely 100% within my power and yet I showed you mercy, it was what was right, or it was, what, it was what was within my rights, excuse me. God said, I was going to be the next king. I could have made it happen right now, but I didn't. I didn't touch you. I didn't want that. I'm not after you. That's the proof. It's like, listen, I'm not after you. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to get rid of you. I'm showing you mercy, or I have shown you mercy, okay? And here's the proof. This little piece of your robe, look, it goes right there, right? Now, we can look at this story, and we can say, wow. Look at the character of David. Look at that. We ought to do that with our enemies. That's a thing that we need to do. We should show them mercy. And so I'm going to grind it out with my life, and I'm going to make it happen, and I don't want to do it. I don't want to show enemies mercy, but you know what? That's the character of God, and I got to do that, so I'm going to do it. You guys know me. At this point in my life, in my walk with God, I'm not about shoulds or ought tos, right? I ought to do that. I'm not about I'm an ought to. I'm into real life and real change in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. So I don't want to take this story and say, you all ought to be like this, right? I want to look at what this tells us about the character of God, And then I want to trust, as your pastor, that I don't have to tell you what you ought to do and what you should do, but that God will do this in your life. And I think it'll take time as you trust him and as you trust who he has made you to be, but I'm actually going to trust the power of the Holy Spirit in you to work in you because I believe as the truth of who you are in Christ is revealed, that truth will begin to mature you in a way that your life and your behaviors actually begin to line up with who God already says you are. Not because I tell you you ought to or I tell you you should, but because it's who you are and Christ is maturing you in in that. The truth that this is actually who you are in Christ, that this is actually Christ in you. So what I want to do, and almost every Sunday morning, this is what I seek to do, is to remind you of who you are in Christ. Remind you of who he has made you to be right now. Because I can say things to get you to behave occasionally. I could do that, to behave in a certain way, but that's not real change. That's doing something because I don't want the pastor to look at me sideways. I want to show you the character of God, the God that you're in a relationship with, 
and the God that literally inhabits you and who, as Jeremy shared last week, whose soul, whose spirit has been knit together with your spirit. And I wanna show you that. I wanna show you that character of that God because that is a new covenant thing, okay? That's a new covenant thing. That's what the new covenant is. You in Christ, Christ in you, this God in you, and his character in you. And I believe as you understand that more and more and more, you actually begin to live letting your character line up with his character, not by forcing behaviors or trying to doing something that you, you don't think, you, or you're trying to do something that you think you should do or not do things that you shouldn't think, don't think you should do, but because you're living out of who you actually are in Christ. So I want to talk about that this morning. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what we see of the character of God in David in this moment. As a man after God's own heart, number one, David showed Saul mercy. David showed Saul mercy. The first thing that I think about when I hear the word mercy is uh, TGIF, full house. We had a reference to John Stamos already, right? His catchphrase have mercy, right? It's usually when a, when a woman is kissing him or something like that. He's like, have mercy. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Nobody else? All right. Um, maybe you go deep south instead. And grandma who says, Lord, have mercy, right? We all have these things like that, that click when we hear certain words. And mercy is one of those things. It's a very churchy word, but it's not always used in, in church stuff, all right? But at its most basic, mercy is this. The definition is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. In other words, Saul was at the mercy of David, right? Saul was there in the cave. David had the power to punish or harm Saul, but he showed mercy. He had compassion. Out of compassion for Saul, and because of who he was as the Lord's anointed, as the Lord's chosen king, he said, I'm gonna have mercy right now. I'm gonna withhold my hand. The common definition for mercy in church goes something like this. God, mercy is the fact that God does not give us what we deserve. That's mercy. God does not give us what we deserve. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all have a sin nature, all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of that sin and that sin nature is death. The earnings, the proper, the appropriate earnings for that sin is death. The wages of Adam and Eve's sin, the wages of our own sin was spiritual death. We talked about that with David and Goliath, right? Spiritual death. The consequence was death for Adam and Eve. And that condition of spiritual death should have or could have been permanent. But God said, I don't want spiritual death to be their permanent situation, to be their permanent state. That's mercy, okay? That's mercy, it was in God's power for the spiritual death to be the eternal state of every human being to ever walk the face of this planet. And it would have been justified because he said that's the consequences of it. 
It would have been fair for death to be our eternal state, but it was mercy from God when he said, no, I don't want that for them. I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and live this way eternally. It was mercy. God showing mercy, kicking them out of the garden was an act of mercy. And not just for Adam and Eve, it was for all humanity. Because in our sin nature, all of humanity, we are enemies to God. Romans 5, 10, we're just gonna read the first part of it. It says, for if while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We're enemies. We were enemies of, of God. We'll read the, verse of the, the rest of that later on. But we're enemies to God. Saul was David's enemy. He wanted to kill him. Saul wanted to kill David, wanted to get rid of him. David was a threat to Saul's throne and he wanted to remove him from the earth. We, in our sin nature, in our separation from God, are enemies to him, opposing forces. Conventional wisdom says, get rid of your enemies. Conventional wisdom says, annihilate them, neutralize the threat. And David's men were a, were a voice of conventional wisdom. There he is, get him. Take him out, right? Be done with this. David's men say kind of what we would expect to be done or expect to happen. David should just get rid of Saul right then and there. Look how easy it is. He's so, literally, his pants are around his ankles. He can't run. Get him. Conventional wisdom would be for God to just gotten rid of us, right? Just get rid of us to smite us, to remove us from the planet physically, spiritually. In fact, he almost did it one time with Noah. God said the world's full of violence, then I'm gonna flood the earth. But the thing is that even in that plan, there was mercy because he didn't get rid of all of humanity. He saved Noah and Noah's family he didn't wipe the earth, uh, wipe, wipe humanity from the face of the earth. There was mercy for humanity in that action because God had something bigger in mind. Even at Noah, God could look through, down, look through history and see Jesus and know that Jesus was gonna redeem everybody back that would come to him. It was mercy for humanity. Looking at David and his story, man, he would have saved himself a lot of trouble. If you read the chapters after this one, it's like time after time, like Saul pursued David. Saul tried to kill David. Hey, look, Saul did this again, over and over and over and over. He would have saved himself so much trouble. But David didn't, right? He would have saved himself years and years of life on the run. He could have lived a life of luxury because he'd have been king. He could have ruled Israel and Judah as the king rather than hide out in caves and live in foreign lands with foreign people who didn't really like him, but they tolerated him. He'd have saved himself a lot of trouble. Same goes from God. He'd have saved himself a lot of trouble. Peter just, all right, that didn't work, right? 
saved himself a lot of inconvenience, he wouldn't have had to die. Jesus didn't have to live those 30 years here on earth. But that's not what God did because that's not what God wanted. He didn't want death for us. He created us for life in him. He created us for real relationship with him. And mercy was what he chose. God would have saved himself a lot of trouble if he just did away with us, if he just did away with all humanity. But he chose mercy. So today, listen, God's not out to get you. He's not out to kill you. He's not hiding around a corner. He's not hiding in the back of the cave just waiting for you to be in some kind of vulnerable position to take you out. He's not out to get you. He's not. And I think a lot of times conventional wisdom that we hear in religion, from religion says, oh, just you wait. That thing you just did, that thought you just had, man, it's coming around. God's gonna get you for it. He's gonna get you. You'll pay for that sin. We hear it from those people who have experienced mercy as they speak to the world. Those who are now on God's side. It's like David's men. We cheer on God. Hey, God, get rid of the earth. Clean them out. Get rid of it. Get rid of them. Do away with them. Wipe them out. But God doesn't go by conventional wisdom. He's not lurking in the dark, not waiting for you to mess up so he can get you back for your sin. Fact is, spiritual death is enough. And if God wanted to do that, if God wanted to get you back for your sin, he'd have done that a long time ago, right? But he chose mercy. He chose not to give us what was fair. David showed Saul mercy. And God has shown us mercy. Why? David showed mercy because it was God's will. Not in the sense like, God, what is your will for my life? But in the sense like, it's what God wanted. David showed mercy to Saul because he believed it was what God wanted. After, he felt remorse. David felt remorse for cutting the king's robe, let alone going out and killing him, right? His conscience bothered him after that. But after he does it, what does it say? What David says to him, man, he says, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to Saul, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he's the Lord's anointed. This is the man that God anointed king of Israel, God's king. How can I touch him? I can't. If God wants to get rid of him, if God wants to get rid of Saul, he'll get rid of Saul. But I won't touch God's chosen that tells me that David understood that God didn't want him to rid the earth of Saul, but that God wanted mercy for Saul in that moment. He was still king. Mercy is what God wanted. It's God's will. It's the same for us. God's will has been mercy for humanity. Look at the Old Testament. I know it's full of all kinds of times of, of judgment and not mercy, but how many times do we see mercy? How many times does Israel stray 
from what God's asked them to do or where they're supposed to go or what they're supposed to say or how they're supposed to act. And God says, all right. Yes, there were consequences for those times. There were absolutely consequences for those times when, when Israel went off and they did their own thing. But over and over and over, and guess what? Israel's still here. God didn't wipe them out. God didn't take them off the face of this planet. Yes, they were captured and, and exiled, but they're still here, right? It's mercy. In 2 Peter 3, Peter is writing about the return of Christ and he's talking about how uh, the earth is gonna be destroyed with fire and there's gonna be the destruction of the ungodly people and all that kind of stuff. And he says this in verse nine. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some of you count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, don't think that God has forgotten. Right? Don't think that God has, has missed this step or how he's, he's slow in making this happen or that his timing is off. He hasn't sent judgment to the world. He hasn't destroyed the earth because of mercy, because of patience. he is patient. He is patient towards you. It's mercy so that any who would come to him have the opportunity to do that. God's will, it's God's will to be merciful on humanity, not judgment, not destruction, not getting rid of it. Mercy is what we see over and over and over. It's what he's chosen over and over and over. And he chooses it again, like we said, even to the dismay of those who have benefited from his mercy. How many times have we seen billboards? Have we seen signs? Have we watched videos? Have we had face-to-face -face conversations with people who just want God to do away with the wicked? Remove them, God. Take them out. Get rid of all those sinners. Just do away with them. Kill them all. Get rid of them. Pronounce judgment. In 2 Peter, he's like, hold on. Don't think God's slow in recognizing these people are wicked. Don't think God's slow is recognizing that they're in opposition to me. So hold on. Because what if God had done that to the people who came before you and said, God, get rid of them all before you came to repentance, before you had the opportunity to get to know Jesus? What if his patience had run out if he'd listened to the conventional wisdom of those who suggested he get rid of all the sinners just the day before you heard the gospel and responded to it? God knows the timeline. He's not slow. He knows what's going on. His will is mercy. Withholding the judgment so that people actually have the opportunity to respond to him. There's a song I like to sing sometime. Um, and it says, you delight in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. What a thought that we have a God who delights in mercy. It delights him. It brings him joy to be merciful. I think the song, I'm not positive because I don't know the people who wrote it, but I think it actually comes from scripture. In Micah chapter seven, in verse 18, it says this. 
And who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love or mercy. Unchanging love is also the same word for mercy. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Other gods, other gods demand penance or payment. Other gods punish and dole out their power. How many images of, of gods do we have in literature? Think about the Greek and the Roman gods who are vengeful, who are out to get humanity, who just want to get even, who, who, who say, listen, you cross the line, whatever. Not our God. Our God delights in mercy. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity? Who passes over rebellious acts? Mercy. We know that only comes through the gift of Jesus. But he delights in giving mercy. It's not reluctance, right? He's not dragging his feet. He's not waiting for him, or for, excuse me, for you to convince him that you deserve his mercy. He delights in mercy. Wrap your head around that. It's his character. That's who he is. That's why he didn't stop with Adam and Eve. That's why he's not slow in pronouncing judgment. He's patient in pronouncing judgment. That's why he came in the form of Jesus. He didn't have to, he didn't need to, but it was his joy. Hebrews 12 Fix our eyes on, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy set before him. It is his joy. He delights in mercy. It's his will. It's what he wants. And we see that with David showing mercy here. And not only mercy, because God delights in mercy, it's what he wants. We see that in David, but in Jesus, in Jesus, God went beyond mercy. In Jesus, God went beyond mercy to grace. Because mercy, mercy, like I said, mercy is withholding the punishment, right? Mercy, mercy is stopping the wave of punishment that's coming. Nope, I'm not gonna do that. We're gonna hold that off. David was merciful by not killing Saul. He stopped, right? But that's where David stopped. Saul went on living as he was. He was not a changed person. He still wanted to kill David. So we see mercy from David. But grace is a step beyond that. Grace is what we see when Jesus came. I know it's that word again, right? Grace. Grace is not just withholding what is deserved. Grace is act actively giving what is not deserved. So mercy says, whoop, stop, I'm gonna stop it. Grace says, mercy says, I'm gonna stop it. Grace says, and here's this. It's like, I'm not gonna spank you. And here's a lollipop. We don't do that to our kids, right? Mercy in a sense, is forgiveness. It's what allows for forgiveness. I'm forgiving that offense. I'm not gonna seek what is rightful justice. 
Grace goes beyond mercy and says, not only am I not seeking justice for this offense, I'm gonna forgive it, but I'm also giving you life on top of that. David stopped at mercy, but Jesus didn't. Mercy is putting Adam and Eve out of the garden so they can't live forever in the eternal state of death. Grace is Jesus redeeming us, living in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and giving us eternal life. Can you see the difference? Mercy limits judgment for giving the offense. Grace piles on top of that life. Jesus came for the forgiveness of sins and for the ending of the old law. He established that with his death. But Jesus came to, forgive, to give abundant life and eternal life in grace on top of that. That's mercy and grace. Romans 5.10, the part of it that we read earlier, the first part of it, it says, for if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, that's mercy, reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, so on top of that, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That word saved is the word sozo in Greek. We see it all the time. That's usually the word that's interpreted saved. Sozo. It means to be healed, to be saved, but it also means to be healed, to be restored, to be made whole. So not only have we been forgiven, not only have we been reconciled to God, oh, we're back to zero, much more than that, we have been healed. We have been given life. We have been restored. We have been made new. That part of us that died when, with Adam and Eve, the spirit, it's made alive through the resurrection of Jesus, through his life. And that changes everything for those who believe, for those who find Jesus. Because where we once were, were, were seeking justice, or, or excuse me, where we're once just, just seeking the forgiveness of sins underneath the law, that's mercy. We're not doing that anymore. We're not just doing that anymore. Now, when you come to repentance in Jesus, you're forgiven through his death. But also on top of that, you're given life. See how we, we, we move from this system of, God, get me back to where I need to be. God, get me back to where I need to be. God, get me back to where I need to be. That's zero. And Jesus says, I'll get you back where you need to be. And now I'm gonna give you life on top of it. So we see mercy in David, in the life of David, and Jesus, he comes and he says, not only mercy, but here's more. Here's more. That's why I keep teaching this over and over and over and over, because when I come into contact with somebody, and it happens, and they say, okay, 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 grace, grace, grace. I get it, I get it, grace. Okay, all right, move on. What's next? What's next? It tells me you've not gotten it. You've not gotten grace yet. You've not got that idea yet. You don't understand because you don't get more than grace because grace is the more. Grace is the more. Grace is life in Christ. Grace is Christ in you. His grace is all sufficient for everything. 
It is everything. It is more than forgiveness. It is the abundant life that he promised. 2 Peter 1 talks about that, the everything, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his excellence. For by these, it goes back to what he was saying before, by his glory and his excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the correction or excuse me, corruption that is in the world by lust. He has provided everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and his excellence. He has granted us his precious and magnificent promises. That's life. He has granted everything, life. So it's mercy and grace. Mercy for your forgiveness, grace for your life. When we take communion, we take the bread and we take the wine or the juice, right? The bread, this is my body broken for you, forgiveness. And this is the blood, this is the new covenant, this is grace for you. We talk about it in terms all the time, mercy and grace. And grace is life. I'm reminding you of who you are in Christ because he's extended that to you and now you're alive in him if you're born again. He has given us everything, what 2 Peter said. He has given us everything. It has been granted already. It is who you already are. That's grace. It's the grace given to you to know that now as you sit in that chair, You have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have it. It's already in you. It's already there. It's already you. It's already who you are. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to reveal to you who you are. Because what happens is when you begin to actually believe that you've been made new, and you actually begin to live that way because of who you are, not because I ought to do this and I think I need to do this to become something. No, it's because of who you are and you're living out of who you are. It's who you already are in him. Why doesn't the worship team come back up here? As they come, and y'all can stand to your feet. I had this thought this morning that I'd never put together. I didn't put it together all week as I was preparing the message. As I was getting ready this morning, as I was brushing my teeth, and I go, and I stopped. Looking in the mirror, staring at myself in the mirror with toothpaste running down the corner of my thought, I had this thought. Mercy was in the Old Testament. We see mercy all the time. Here's mercy. God's, not gonna, God's gonna withhold judgment. We see mercy when Abraham is begging God. Like if I, in Sodom and Gomorrah, if I can find 50 men, okay, if you can find 50 men, that's mercy. How, how about if I find 40? How about if I find 30, 20, 10, right? That's mercy, mercy, mercy. The city ends up being destroyed anyway because Abraham couldn't find it. But God was willing 
to withhold his hand. He was willing to have mercy, right? We see it all the time in the Old Testament. You know, we don't see in the Old Testament, you don't see until the New Testament, it's grace. Because grace came with Jesus. Grace is life. And if we try to live in an in a old covenant understanding, under the old covenant, we're going to live in a way that says every day we wake up and say, or every night when we go to sleep, we're going to say, God, forgive me for my sin. Just give me back to zero. God, forgive me for that. God, I, God get me back to zero. If, if you'll just let me go one more day, God, I'll get it right this time, right? We keep coming to that. Get me back to zero. Get me back to zero. Get me back to zero. You know where that leaves us? Leaves us at zero. But if we understand that we've been given life, all of a sudden I'm living up here. And I'm not living at the standard. I'm living above the standard because it's who I am. When Jesus listed out all those things and he said, you've heard it said in the old covenant, don't murder. But I say, if you're even angry, you've already done it. That's zero, right? Mercy gets us back to zero. Mercy gets us back to zero because you can't do any of those things that Jesus said. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give you life abundant so that it is actually possible that instead of being angry, we look at that person and we say, God, have mercy on them too. God, have grace for them too. That is actually possible because the Holy Spirit will do that in you. But it's not gonna do that when all you're doing is saying, God, just give me back to zero. God, just give me back to zero. I just wanna be okay with you. I just wanna be in right relationship with you. You're in right relationship with him if you're saved through Jesus Christ. You're in right relationship. But it's more than that. It's abundant life. It's more than God, if I can just not offend you. Guess what? You're in a relationship. God knows what's gonna happen, so he's not gonna be offended by you because you're in a relationship with him and he knows what's coming. He knows what you're gonna do. He knows you're gonna, gonna get confused and you're gonna say the wrong thing. He knows you're gonna curse whatever. It's, it, it, God, listen, that's still sin. Don't hear me say that. That's still sin, but it's covered by the blood of Jesus in your life and it doesn't move your relationship with God. You might feel distanced, but it does not move your relationship with God. You've not lost your standing with him because of who he has made you to be. When you're born again, you're born again. So the question for me always comes back, are you born again? Have you asked him to make you new? And if you haven't, we're all, I'm always open to that. I'm always open to that. So maybe we just need to ask that. Is there anybody who needs life in Christ this morning? I realize that's not the most emotional, heartstring pulling thing to say, but is there anybody who needs life in Jesus? Because it's available. It's what he wants. It's his will. He showed mercy. And then he said, you know what? I want grace for these people. Forgiveness for sins under the law and now grace, which is new life. I want to indwell them. I want to live in them. So the prayer team's back there. I want to pray with you. Can we lead you in that process of finding life this morning, like real life? Do you want to know what it is to actually live as God created us to live? Because that's what, that's what this whole thing is living as God has created us to live with his spirit in us. 
That's what I want for you this morning. That's what I want for all of us this morning. We're just gonna sing some more. If you need prayer for anything, prayer team is back there. Um, And if you want Jesus in your life like you've never experienced, we wanna pray with you. Can we do that? Let's go on and worship.